Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisations and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme today on what is a warm spring morning here in the capital is Hugo Drayton. Hugo is a senior non-executive director at Future PLC, a global specialist multimedia platform that creates law communities across a portfolio of over 200 compelling brands. For 10 years, Hugo also spent a period of time as CEO of brand advertising ad tech business in Skin Media and remains a board director to date. Uh, Hugo, very warm welcome to yourself today and thanks ever so much for joining us on the show. Good morning, Scott. Thank you very much for, for inviting me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme with us, Hugo, and certainly is a lovely day for it. Um, I think we should start by addressing the elephant in the room here, and that's the fact that although we're now starting to see some green shoots as we're speaking now in early June 2021 and we're moving out of COVID-19 social restrictions, we have been in the grip of the pandemic for the best part of the last 14 months, haven't we? So with that in mind, to what extent has it affected you and affected your business, would you say, all of this? Well, the pandemic has inevitably been an enormous challenge for everybody on every level of society and uh, none more so than for for businesses. And of course, there have been a a lot of negatives, a lot of people who've suffered, but there have also been some winners. Um, There have been some, some positives that have come out of the special challenges that we've had to face, particularly those of working from home, of relying much more on technology than we have done previously, and also from a leadership perspective about being even more clear in communication and direction because we have, to some degree, lost that sort of the body language and the, the immediacy of being mm. around our colleagues regularly. I think that's very right, and I think when you are in a leadership position, you're having to essentially guide people from a distance because people have moved over to that flexible working model. It almost sort of demands change in your leadership style, doesn't it, in a way? I think it does. And we, we come at, it's a period in history where there, there was a lot of change already happening, um, a lot more understanding of humanity, I suppose, in a general sense, but of how we need to treat people and how we need to nurture people, and so the the sort of the imposition of some of some of the challenges around COVID have come on top of what was already a, a, a very interesting and um, and time of, of change, and that's illustrated by the big concerns and the attention now paid, for example, to mental well-being and health. And, and the general well-being of staff and the importance of looking after people as well as them delivering a great job and, and, and supporting the business. So the, the, the COVID situation has accelerated a lot of those changes that were happening already, particularly the, the move to digital, which has clearly happened over the last 20 years, um, but which has been 
massively speeded up by the fact that we're not commuting to offices and we are much more dependent upon technology for for meetings and for decision making. And I think that even though that increased use of technology has come about out of necessity during this time, even if we sort of fast forward to a period where COVID-19 is no longer an immediate and present danger, and maybe there aren't any sort of new variants threatening everything again, um, flexible working models, increased use of technology, it's going to be the status quo now by the sounds of it. That's right. From a, from the perspective of future PLC we were in, a, in an advantageous position in the sense that we were already a significantly digital business, mm. both in the business, both in, in, in the core of our business to consumers, but also in the way that we conduct business. So for, for us at Future, it wasn't perhaps such a big shift as it might have been for, for other industries and other companies, even in our industry. Um, but you're absolutely right the genie will not go back into the bottle. From now on, we will inevitably take a more flexible approach and there'll be a much more mixed economy in terms of um, location and in terms of the the way that we use technology to deliver our businesses and to work with, with our colleagues. And rightfully, there's been a lot of discussion about how that flexible working model helps with mental health and well-being from the point of view of the work-life balance. And rightfully, there's been a great emphasis on CEOs, business leaders, directors having to look after mental health among their workforce. Now, at the Leaders' Council, particularly in recent weeks, we have been talking an awful lot about the risks associated with CEO stress and burnout. And I think as leaders in our roles, it can be quite easy, especially during a time like this, to get so caught up in the hectic world of survival mode, running a business, looking after everybody else's well-being and you somewhat end up neglecting your own sometimes. I'm sure that there are cases of that. I have to say that the leaders uh, around whom I'm working very regularly, particularly at Future and at InSkin Media, I don't think there's been any, um, there's been no uh, note of that that I can, that I can perceive. Mm. Leaders, you know, by, in, by, by their nature, you know, have to inspire, they have to lead by example. And a lot of that comes down to energy and enthusiasm and to setting a very clear direction for the, for the business and for projects. And I think that the, you know, the mental, the mental well-being and general well-being is, um, is clearly of huge importance because our colleagues will only work to, the, to their maximum effect if they are if they're feeling happy and rewarded and comfortable and so it clearly is important for us as leaders to set an environment in which people are, are both comfortable and able to, to talk and, and raise issues and concerns should they have them I think mm. that most leaders are by nature strong and resilient and of course one of the things that's come out in recent months and, and, and years is that, you know, sometimes that, that, can, that can be a shell which, which hides a, a, deeper, a deeper problem. But I, but I also think we need to be clear about the other side of the coin, which is that the, 
the focus on each individual's well-being is absolutely right, but it needs to be echoed by personal responsibility. We mustn't use the, um, the, the, the sort of the extra attention that we're giving to well-being to diminish people's personal responsibility because if people are personally responsible and personally engaged, they will be more fulfilled and that's a virtuous circle. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't encourage in any way the concerns about well-being to, to diminish people's um, either wish or ability to contribute because that's what a workspace is. It's a collection of people contributing to a goal and, and adding. And, you know, it's, a, it's all about the, the sum of the parts being greater than the individual's. I think that's an incredibly important point, not letting sort of an overemphasis on mental health and well-being, if you will, to erode that virtuous circle that you've talked about and diminish personal responsibility. It is going to be important and it's going to require a lot of adaptability from leaders, especially if their teams are working from a distance and they're having to sort of keep an eye on things from afar. And with a lot of people having to adapt at an unprecedented scale over the last 14 months, albeit it's been quite a challenging time, quite a tragic time for others as well. So many, both business leaders and employees alike, have come out of the pandemic to this point and really look back on it, feeling that they've learned something and they've come out more resilient and more strong for that experience. Would you say that that's also applicable for yourself, Hugo, and that you have learned a lot from the last year? Yes, I think I think we all have, and, and, and I certainly have. And you know, I think some of the positives that come out are to, to really see how individuals at any level in the organisation have taken on responsibility and are able to get on and be productive and responsible on their own while contributing to the collective. I think that the you know it, it, it's it's incumbent upon a leader to create an environment where people are comfortable, as I said previously. And that includes allowing people to take risks, allowing people to to try stuff out and to fail quickly, to use the Americanism. I mean, we are we live in a world, especially in in our in our technology, ad tech, and uh, publishing world. We live in a world which is I often characterise as a world of beta. Things are not permanent. Things are changing the whole time. And one of the positives of that is that it means you can you can try things out and if they don't work that's fine because actually in a digital world that can be changed immediately so there is no need to um to hold back if you've got a good idea and it makes sense then try it out and and i think this comes back to another point another positive that's come out of covid which is the acceleration and the speeding up. I think that we've realized, a lot of companies have realized, and I include the companies I'm involved in in this, that often decision-making can be done much quicker and doesn't that won't impair the decision, make it any worse. That, that doesn't mean that we should be reckless or that we should forgo research and preparation. Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that we can do things faster. And I think the fact that we are now more attuned to a world of teams and Zoom meetings, typically better run, typically running more to time 
and we want to have fewer meetings and make the meetings that we have much more effective and productive. And so I do think that when we get back to a, a more normalized situation of being back in an office for a lot of people, that we will carry with us some of those lessons that we've learned during this stressful time of, of the pandemic. And we'll, I think we'll keep that accelerated um, perspective. I think, I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. One of my, you know, my optimistic side thinks that we will retain that that need for speed and the opportunity to do mm. things more quickly and perhaps to pontificate less. I think I can see exactly where you're coming from there. And I think that is something that we can't lose sight of as we hopefully move out of the uh, the lockdown. And just thinking about what that sort of post-COVID future might hold more specifically for you and your businesses now. Um, what is your sort of forecast, if you like, for the next sort of 12 months? And where would you like Future PLC and indeed InSkin Media to be this time in a year as we hopefully leave COVID behind? Well, both of the companies that we're talking about have responded very well to um, the pandemic scenario. I mean, in the case of Future PLC, it's grown enormously during the pandemic. We we have acquired and onboarded two huge companies, TI Media, which is what we used to call IPC Media, a huge, what was a magazine business with about 1,200 people. They've all been onboarded without anyone ever meeting anybody in person, which is an extraordinary thing, which a few years ago we would have felt probably impossible. And since then, Futures also acquired Go Compare, the price comparison site. So Future as a company has evolved dramatically during the last 18 months and has gone from strength to strength, despite, not because of, but despite the challenges of the pandemic. Um, in the case of InSkin, which is a much smaller business, um, they were able to take advantage of some cost savings in order to, as it were, survive and thrive during a tough period. And I think both of the companies come out of this period in many ways much, much stronger. In terms of the future, um, at the moment, neither of the companies is, is in a situation where people are working regularly in an office. That will evolve back to an office because the serendipity of being with your colleagues, the collaboration of being with colleagues, particularly for the younger teams of learning by imitation and understanding how a company and indeed the world works by watching it work and hearing and seeing it work firsthand, that cannot easily be replicated through mm. digital services. And so there will definitely be a move back to being together in offices. Of course, a lot of people are talking about this hybrid model whereby we work partly in an office and partly remotely. And I think for many businesses, certainly in the service areas, that is a very possible and positive thing. But it also comes with huge challenges. I mean, a hybrid model of working part-time in an office only works if the right people are in that office at the same time. So both logistically and sort of organizationally, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's going to be very challenging. 
but I think also exciting, and I think it will it will lead to a more flexible workplace, and hopefully will lead to a more ideas based and uh, productive, uh, fast moving work workplace. So um, I am very optimistic about where the sort of the cultures are going, but they will not be without significant challenges and hurdles um, around organization. And of course, different people have different needs and different people have different desires about how they would like to run their work lives. For those of us that are in the later stages of our careers, it feels in many ways quite a, quite a luxury to be able to be remote. Whereas if you're starting out like my children are in their careers, they're missing that environment, that sort of both social as well as professional environment of an office. And so I think there are going to be a lot of a lot of challenges and obviously different businesses and different industries will respond in, in different ways. But as I say, overall, I'm optimistic that the things that we've learned during the pandemic will lead us to be better once we get back to a certain level of normal normalization. I think it's a hugely important consideration that you brought up there, Hugo, that the work from home scenario is not a one size fits all approach. And we have to really be conscious of that going forward. Um, and it's going to be interesting, as you say, just to see how industry responds to the uh, the challenge of the next few months as we move out of uh, the COVID period, hopefully. Um we are just about out of time on the podcast this morning, but it's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the programme and a most insightful experience for myself and the listeners, for sure. And I actually think as we start to see the fog lifting a bit more and we understand exactly what route industry is taking, um, we could maybe even catch up and have you back on the show just to see how things are getting on at both businesses. Thank you very much. I mean, as a final point, I think the overriding um, quality of leadership post-pandemic and at any other time is communication. Mm. And it's been deeply illustrated during this challenging period that it's almost impossible to over-communicate and leaders need to be absolutely on top of the communication internally as well as externally. I think that's very, very right indeed and sound advice for any business leaders tuning into this podcast today. Um, Hugo, it's been an immense pleasure welcoming you onto the show today. And since we're still moving out of the lockdown, but we're not quite 100% there yet, please do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on in the world as well. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure for me to welcome Hugo Drayton of Future PLC and InSkin Media onto the programme today. Uh, coming up next on the show, we'll be looking ahead to the summer by hearing from England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, who will be coming on to discuss the importance of leadership during his illustrious career. Um, that's what will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may, may it last. Absolutely. Thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, 
speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, is the game's nearly finished? I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hansfield Kowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yes, I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. 
an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And so on, but really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently, and to see individually the the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on, and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. And very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about going to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with 
arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country. Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively, and you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my in my football life, and I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think, well, like, that was a really stupid thing today, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played. There was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the streets, and uh, well, you were actually, but that that happens. That happens. You'll you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence, going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to. 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about, as I, I kind of put it, between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then or centre-half at school. Um, he uh, said, I'm going to try you up front. He put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. I have one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got Norton and Norton on out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game. Um, v Lancashire up, up in their territory. But that was, that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front, and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around I think September October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23 24 games no 27 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a midfield mm. player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football the role of a goalkeeper of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and they were showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward, 
other balls and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world-class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that had uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate hey, at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years. And it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course. But I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club that I was. I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I've made very little contribution to that success that I've had so um, yes it, 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 the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it as long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was, that was a good time completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses 
is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey is I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if you're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you're managing the group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's the simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players, I felt should have been in the squad possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Mm, ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, Thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the program this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the program in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the program. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.